If you value the show as an educational resource, please consider passing it on to another person. Unlike many podcasts today, Dirty History is not backed by a major organization or sponsor. The only way we can spread is by word of mouth. That said, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on the platform that you get this show on. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get the show, please subscribe and review. This simple act, four minutes of your time, will help the show more than any dollar amount could. So once again, wherever you get Dirty History, please subscribe, like, and review. And with that, on with the show. Listen, this is a long story about substances that are, as Aldous Huxley puts it in his work, The Doors of Perception, quote, a friend of immemorially long standing. Yet, when I say the word psychedelics, it's hard not to view the term through a kaleidoscopic lens. How could the popular conception of these age-old substances be so nearsighted? The word itself psychedelics, has been perverted. Its original meaning has been obscured by the haze of the 1960s, an era in some circles of recreational drug use, free love, spiritual awakening, of course, psychedelic music. The period, much like the music, produced a cacophony of larger-than-life figures and events that obscured the intention of psychedelics, a now taboo term. The word has become more than what was intended. And to a certain degree, this all makes some sense. These substances we're talking about here, regardless of mindfulness or spirituality or ancient origins, are drugs. And when Americans hear rhetoric as they did on June 17, 1971, from their president, Richard Nixon, making clear and decisive remarks as to the mainstream's perspective on drugs... Want to join me here? Won't you be seated, please, ladies and gentlemen? Come on, Dr. Jaffe. And Mr. Krogh, Mr. Rodman. Fine, fine. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to summarize for you the meeting that I have just had with the bipartisan leaders, which began at 8 o'clock and was completed two hours later. I began the meeting by making this statement, which I think needs to be made to the nation America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. And of course the reaction would be negative in terms of how people would view drugs. It's public enemy number one. It's a war. Blame would be placed, outcry over substances stealing sons and daughters away to communes on the far reaches of the continent or in flop houses in the dirty gutters of major cities. It's natural that people would conflate hallucinogens with substances like later meth, cracker, heroin and place them all into one easily understandable category. Drugs. In fact, that's exactly what the United States government did under the Controlled Substances Act, which categorized illicit substances into five schedules or classifications dependent on the drug's potential for abuse and medical value. Schedule 1 drugs 
have a high potential for abuse and no medical value, while Schedule 5 drugs have some medicinal value and a comparatively lower risk for abuse. A drug schedule determines the limits in what's possible research-wise. Schedule 1 drugs have many more regulatory restrictions on research than, say, Schedule 5 drugs would. And if you look exclusively at the way the schedules are described in the written code, independent of the drugs categorized therein, the Controlled Substances Act makes sense. Here's a quote from the Act itself. Quote, Schedule 1. A. The drug or other substance has a high potential for abuse. B. The substance or drug has no currently accepted medical use in treatment in the United States. And C. There is a lack of accepted safety for the use of the drug or other substances under medical supervision. When making a judgment about the value of the CSA, the Controlled Substances Act, based solely on the way the definition for Schedule I drugs is written, of course those substances should be limited for the sake of public safety if that's your main concern. A drug that is a high potential for abuse, a drug with no medical value, and that there's no safe way to do it. Of course we should do something about those drugs falling into the hands of people if public safety is your main concern. I mean, according to the definition, Schedule One drugs should be dangerous and lack useful purpose, and therefore, from a pragmatic point of view, these substances need not fall into the hands of everyday people. And I realize that for some of you, this line of thinking doesn't play out as well. I understand in assuming that public safety and not public, say, freedom is a primary concern, that, that alienates a fair swath of the listeners on this show. But it's a less controversial framework to play in for our case study. Speaking of controversy, the way the schedules are written is not that controversial. I mean, we've established that. It's the substances that are placed within each schedule that breed the controversy. Remember, Schedule 5, minimal potential for abuse, some medical value. Schedule 1, high potential for abuse, no value. So in descending order and by no means an exhaustive list, here are just a few highlights of drugs in each schedule. In Schedule 5, you have something like Robitussin. Schedule 3, Tylenol with codeine, ketamine, metabolic steroids, and testosterone. Schedule 2 is where things really get interesting. You have cocaine, meth, oxycodone, Adderall, and Vicodin. If you pay attention to any current events or anything in the news, meth, oxycodone, Adderall, and Vicodin have all been in and out of late-night news cycles. And Schedule 1, interestingly enough, contains all of the substances we'll be focusing on for this series, and some other ones. You have LSD, mescaline, psilocybin, DMT, marijuana, ecstasy, and heroin. Now, if this scheduling sounds strange to you, I think that was the point. Marijuana is considered more addictive and more harmful than meth. The major problem with the Controlled Substances Act is that Congress never clearly defines what abuse means when writing it. 
Therefore, you have this whole gray area that could be exploited by law enforcement, and specifically the DEA, in determining the schedule of drugs. That's part of how marijuana gets scheduled as more likely to be abused than, say, cocaine or meth. You see, mounting a moral and societal panic is easier without the need for qualifying what you're angry at and what you are not. Subgroups complicate things. And in the early 1970s, when we see the Controlled Substances Act come up, there was a real fear among conservative Americans about what drugs would do to the moral fabric of the country. Broadly, I think it was more of a concern of most Americans, but this shouldn't come as a shock. We've seen this before. If it wasn't psychedelics, it would be alcohol, nicotine, gambling, pornography, homosexuality, political orientation, or spiritual belief. However, for our purposes, it seems that the world, at least for a time, went sour on psychedelics. And even the hippies, who in public conception seem to be the vanguard of psychedelia, they couldn't even sustain what they were doing. As Hunter S. Thompson put it in his book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, quote, San Francisco in the middle 60s was a very special time and place to be a part of. Maybe it meant something. Maybe not. But no explanation, no mix of words or music or memories can touch that sense of knowing that you were there and alive in that corner of the time in the world. Whatever it meant, history is hard to know because of all the hired bullshit, but even without being sure of history, it seems entirely reasonable to think that every now and then, the energy of a whole generation comes to a head in a long, fine flash. For reasons that nobody really understands at the time, and which never explain in retrospect what actually happened, we had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west, and with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark and the place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. When Hunter S. Thompson did public readings, if he did them, um, that was typically the quote he ruled with. Now, that was abridged for the sake of brevity, but the popular conception of what the counterculture represents and the assumptions made about the substances circling these groups simply couldn't take hold in American culture. Hallucinogens simply couldn't be welcomed. The movement fell apart. The mainstream soured. No more Life magazine exposés on mescaline or psilocybin in a beneficial way for the drug users. The counterculture used and abused drugs, and there was a crackdown. That's the story. That wasn't always the case, and perhaps it never entirely was. In fact, the term psychedelic was chosen to free the drugs umbrella beneath from any clinical or public preconceptions of what they were. More on that later. But an early task facing psychedelic researchers in the 1950s was to figure out what they would call these depersonalizing, ego-shattering, body-image-distorting, synesthesia- and giggle-inducing, time-distorting substances. And the task was not to be taken lightly. The optics of something often hinges on how people talk about it. What to call these drugs, 
How will they be used? Can they be used to any discernible benefit? What is a benefit? These are all questions circling the early psychedelic field. For example, when researchers administered standardized psychiatric tests to subjects on LSD, the results mirrored those found in schizophrenics who took the same test. An early application of LSD in science and medicine was as a tool for understanding psychosis. The thought was, a researcher could control the dosage of a substance to induce schizophrenic-like behaviors and study them in a monitored environment. Or, conversely, the researcher could take the substance and experience for him or herself, likely himself in the 1950s unfortunately, what being schizophrenic is like, and therefore better understand the patient. Hence, one of those early terms for the substance, psychotomimetic. Let's break that word down. Psychotomimetic. To mimic the symptoms of psychosis. That is what these substances, LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, DMT, that's what these were called in the early days of research. And with a name like that, and substances as suggestible to outside influences and stimuli as these, I'm getting ahead of myself. This series is titled, How Psychedelics Became Dangerous. Therefore, my aim in doing this episode is laid bare. This is essentially a biography or genealogy or whatever philosophical term you want to use for a study of something the rise, fall, and prohibition of a misunderstood and therefore occasionally feared group of substances. We'll be discussing the classical hallucinogens across a series of episodes. LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, and DMT. One is synthesized in a lab. The others occur naturally. Psilocybin and mushrooms, mescaline and a few cacti, and DMT in small amounts in various places like the brains of rats, human cerebrospinal fluid, and certain vines. Theoretically, three of the four of these substances could be forged for, no purchase required. And that is what's most striking to me about these substances. The more I read about them, the more I research them, the more surprised I am about the field of study and its long history with many unexpected twists and turns. And it's not unlike what I imagine the feeling that Stephen Ross, a psychiatrist at NYU, had when researching the uses of psilocybin in treating alcoholism. Speaking to a colleague, Ross learned that Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, wanted to introduce LSD therapy into AA in the 1950s. Stephen Ross, upon hearing this, was naturally curious, and I think what he what he says in regards to this curiosity is a great summation of the mission of this episode. He said, quote, I felt like an archaeologist unearthing a completely buried body of knowledge. Beginning in the early 50s, psychedelics had been used to treat a whole host of conditions. There had been 40,000 research participants and more than 1,000 clinical papers. The American Psychiatric Association had whole meetings centered around LSD, this new wonder drug. This account of Stephen Ross's surprise when he learned of this 
shall we say, dirty history. And I'm winking right now and also rolling my eyes at the same time, but you can't see it and it's confusing. But anyway, Stephen Ross uncovered for himself this whole history of psychedelic research. It's something that inspired my own curiosity and hopefully will inspire yours. And it's, it's the impetus for this episode. It's the microcosm for this entire four-episode series. After all, for most of us, when you hear about psychedelics, legitimate science is usually not the first field that comes to mind. It's usually as a punchline or a reference to hippies or talking about Pink Floyd or Jefferson Airplane or The Doors or something. But as I said, that wasn't always the case. Maybe never was the case entirely, and perhaps won't be for much longer. Maybe this isn't a shock to you. Maybe it is. Maybe it matters. Maybe it doesn't. But when the federal government at one time funds numerous studies and clinical trials for these substances, and then at another time prohibits them strongly and actively fights them in a war on drugs, we could probably use some explaining as to how this change was made. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this is Dirty History. Part 1. LSD Being the only one of four classical psychedelics to have its known origin in a lab, it felt, I guess, a little more grounded of a place to begin our biography of psychedelia. I mean, from its origin, LSD has been well documented, rather extensively for a time. Well, about as good as a job of documenting something that has been considered illegal for quite some time and manufactured in unmonitored clandestine labs, as you can do. That said, for a time, the substance was carefully monitored, and that is a consequence of its discovery, not being made in a jungle or desert somewhere, but in a laboratory under conditions set for research and data collection. Therefore, as our introductory substance, it was too good an opportunity to pass up having something documented from its origin and not having to speculate about the earliest usage by looking at archaeological dig sites and oral histories from nomadic shamans, and you'll get plenty of that in the psilocybin and mescaline episodes, but in discussing LSD, the whole trip begins, well, with the first trip at Sandoz Pharmaceuticals Basel Laboratory in 1943, Switzerland. Now, Sandoz was founded in 1886, manufacturing dyes. The company wouldn't have a pharmaceutical department until 1917, when Arthur Stoll, a chemistry professor at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich, isolated ergotamine from a fungus found in tainted rye called ergot. The substance is active as a vasoconstrictor and is used to treat acute migraines. This is, again, a reason I am so fascinated by chemistry, as ergo, the fungus in which ergotamine was isolated, has caused the death of thousands over many centuries and is today used to treat migraines. One such account of these horrors was from the year 857 in what is present-day Germany, and the reports follow, quote, A great plague of swollen blisters consumed the people by a loathsome rot so that their limbs were loosened and fell off before death. This horrific description was caused by exposure to ergo in infected grains, and is a condition called St. Anthony's Fire. 
However, that wouldn't become a suspected cause for quite some time. But today, we know that there are two categories of ergotism's toxic effects. There's gangrenous ergotourism and convulsive ergotourism. As described by the University of Hawaii's botany department, quote, convulsive ergotourism is caused by nervous dysfunction where the victim is twisting and contorting their bodies in pain, trembling and shaking, wry neck, more or less fixed twisting of the neck, which seems to simulate convulsions or fits. In some cases, this is accompanied by muscle spasms, confusion, delusions, and hallucinations. But this is all prelude, and a bit of a tangent, sorry. You know I can't resist descriptions of swollen blisters and loathsome rot. It's interesting stuff. It's people pushed to their extremes when their body is dying before their eyes. It allows us to see what people find most important. Anyway, Arthur Stoll's isolation of ergotamine leads to Stoll hired as the head of the newly minted pharmaceutical department at Sandoz. And with Stoll at the helm, a man named Albert Hoffman, working in Switzerland at the Sandoz Pharmaceuticals Basel Laboratory, was to discover the psychoactive compound LSD. Like Stoll, Hoffman was researching ergo, the fungus behind St. Anthony's fire. However, he wasn't the only one. Researchers at the Rockefeller Institute had isolated, characterized, and named the nucleus in common with all ergo alkaloids. This nucleus was so named lysergic acid. Working to prepare these alkaloids synthetically, Hoffman then applied the procedure to produce new compounds with lysergic acid. So let's attempt to break that whole description down into English. So we have the Rockefeller Institute researchers there, and they had isolated and characterized and named the nucleus in common with all ergo alkaloids. And alkaloids are a class of naturally occurring organic compounds that mostly contain basic nitrogen atoms. Hoffman, I'm sure aware of the Rockefeller research, is attempting to produce synthetic compounds of lysergic acid, that nucleus which is common in all of the ergo alkaloids. Hoffman then applied the procedure to produce new compounds with lysergic acid. The 25th of these was known as lysergic acid diethylamide, or LSD-25. By the way, while I think I did an okay job at simplifying the chemistry, I am not a chemist, and I assume the process was complicated. I have not studied chemistry, nor have I ever said diethylamide in a sentence other than when talking about LSD, so take that as you will. Upon its synthesis, LSD-25 was studied using animal subjects, and the effects were, to Sandoz, underwhelming. The only measurable conclusions were that LSD-25 had a strong effect on the uterus, whatever that means, so research on the substance was discontinued. This was circa 1938. It shelved for quite a few years until April 1943, Hoffman produced some more LSD for th further study. It was during this period of study that Hoffman was interrupted by a rather odd sensation. So it's 1943, April 1943, and Hoffman is doing further research on LSD, and he has to leave the lab early. In his own words, he said, quote, 
I was forced to interrupt my work in the laboratory in the middle of the afternoon and proceed home, being affected by a remarkable restlessness combined with a slight dizziness. At home, I lay down and sank into a not unpleasant intoxicated-like condition, characterized by an extremely stimulated imagination. In a dreamlike state, with eyes closed as I found the daylight to be unpleasantly glaring, I perceived an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures, extraordinary shapes with an intense kaleidoscopic play of colors. After some two hours, this condition faded away. Now, even though he had not directly ingested LSD or purposely introduced it into his system, this account seems awfully close to what we know to be the description of a psychedelic trip. However, in 1943 Switzerland, Hoffman did not have a wealth of experience to draw from. Hoffman then reasoned that, despite being careful in the lab and employing the typical safety precautions, the LSD must have caused the experience. The LSD picked up onto his fingertips. Interested and intrigued by the powerful nature of the substance, a few days later, Hoffman purposefully ingested a quarter of a milligram of lysergic acid diethylamide tartrate. It's 250 micrograms. For context, 250 micrograms is twice as much as the typical dose today. However, how could he know that? No one has done it before. Hoffman must have thought he was working with a small amount, and technically, I suppose, 250 micrograms is small. For comparison, a paperclip weighs approximately one gram, and there are one million micrograms in a gram. He took 250 of those. And yet, it's still twice as much as the typical dose taken today. It's a potent substance. Another crucial point for those of you who are completionists, if you listen to the whole episode, and really the whole series for that matter, and come back to this very moment, you will see how incredibly important Hoffman's decision and following insights are. Albert Hoffman is one of, to be recorded, only very few people to try LSD and perhaps hallucinogens in general, without any preconceived notions of what to expect. There's no guru, no drug travelogues, no spiritualism, no mindfulness, no mainstream media writing about it, no fear. No attention paid to set and setting or any mind given to how suggestible the whole experience can be. Albert Hoffman dropped acid with comparatively very few strings attached. From his own notes, quote, April 19th, 1943. 0.5 cc of a half promil aqueous solution of diethylamide tartrate orally. Taken diluted with about 10 cc of water. It's tasteless. Beginning dizziness. Feeling of anxiety. Visual distortions. Symptoms of paralysis. Desire to laugh. Home by bicycle. Most severe crisis. The dizziness and sensation of fainting became so strong at times that I could no longer hold myself erect and had to lie down on a sofa. 
Everything in the room spun around, and the familiar objects and pieces of furniture assumed grotesque and threatening forms. There were, in continuous motion, animated as if driven by an inner restlessness. The lady next door, whom I scarcely recognized, brought me milk. In the course of the evening, I drank more than two liters. She was no longer Mrs. R., but rather a malevolent, insidious witch with a colored mask. Every exertion of my will, every attempt to put an end to the disintegration of my outer world and the dissolution of my ego seemed to be a wasted effort. A demon had invaded me, had taken possession of my body, mind, and soul. I was seized by a dreadful fear of going insane. I was taken to another world, another place, another time. My body seemed to be without sensation, lifeless, strange. Was I dying? He wasn't dying, of course. He was only tripping. When a doctor was sent for him, all he could detect were dilated pupils. Everything else was normal. Hoffman continues, quote, The horror softened and gave way to a feeling of goodwill, fortune, and gratitude. The more normal perceptions and thoughts returned, and I became more confident that the danger of insanity was conclusively past. Now, little by little, I could begin to enjoy the unprecedented colors and plays of shapes that persisted behind my closed eyes. Kaleidoscopic, fantastic images surged in on me. The horror subsided, and Hoffman would describe parts of this experience as deeply religious, a kind of transformative moment. This sentiment would be echoed for decades. But for a while, the LSD trip as a deeply religious transformative experience was not a consensus position. Albert Hoffman has to wake up the next day, which, as he described, was characterized by all his senses vibrating in a condition of highest sensitivity, which would persist for the entire day. In his own descriptions, the food was delicious, the garden more green than usual, Hoffman's world, the morning after, was seemingly fresh and new. He concluded that since he had remembered the whole trip and that it actively shifted his worldview, he had been no cause there had been no cause to believe that LSD twenty five would cause mental impairment. Hoffman's superiors at Sandoz were, of course, shocked to hear this. The thought that a substance could be so potent that you could obtain up to 300,000 sizable doses from a single ounce of the material it was a very profitable thought. To confirm what Hoffman found, there were more self-tests at Sandoz, with doses equal to and smaller than Hoffman's own, all allowing for various psychedelic journeys of differing intensities. With such a potent substance on their hands, Sandoz was certain that it could be implemented into psychiatry and psychology. The first paper on LSD's mental effects was published in 1947. From there, American psychologist Nicholas Barcel 
got his hands on some LSD-25 thanks to Werner Stoll, the son of Arthur Stoll, the head of the pharmaceutical department at Sandoz. Some more LSD was sent to Boston's psychopathic hospital. More papers on the medical effects of the substance are published. And in 1953, Dr. Ronald Sanderson opens the world's first public LSD clinic in England. And just three years later, the Psychiatric Research Institute in Prague, Stanislav Grov, has his first LSD experience. And he describes the experience as such, quote, And this incredible blast of white light came, and the next thing that I knew was that my consciousness was leaving my body. Then I lost the clinic. Then I lost Prague. Then I lost the planet. Then I had the feeling of existing in a totally disembodied state, in literally becoming the universe, experiencing it. Groff, of course, would go on to become one of the most preeminent LSD researchers in the world. Of the distinctness of the LSD experience, he had stated, quote, The content and nature of the experiences that these substances induce are thus not artificial products of their pharmacology, interacting with our brains, but authentic expressions of the psyche revealing its functions on levels ordinarily not available for observation and study. And it's interesting to think about this substance, which elicited such interesting effects in the mind and subjective experience, produced no obvious physiological changes in the person taking it. How could that be of value to the medical and scientific community, especially when the field of psychiatry was dominated by behaviorism, with figures like B.F. Skinner, John Watson, and Edward Thorndike at the fore? The subjective experience of the mind, teased out through discussion and association, seemed to have gone the way of Sigmund Freud, who it seems at least to some people I know in the field of psychiatry, is not to be taken too seriously anymore. He's, he's kind of eclipsed. But in Saskatchewan, Canada, one mental health center experimented with LSD to treat schizophrenia. The prevailing thought among researchers there was that if you're testing and claiming to be an expert on LSD, you must at least try it yourself. And you can see how this whole idea of self-testing and the importance of it would later become an inspiration to figures like Timothy Leary, who we'll spend some time with later on. But the question is, how do we get from the discovery of LSD in 1943 to the world at large by the 1950s with exposés on psychedelics written in Life magazine? Essentially, Sandoz was ready to ship vast quantities of LSD to anyone using it for research. They were effectively crowdsourcing LSD research because, like Albert Hoffman, they were not sure how the drug could be used, but they were sure that it could be. Now, research is a loose term. Because... As we'll find out later in the story, there were certain individuals who were acting independent of larger institutions buying and facilitating LSD sessions. The substance was marketed as a psychiatric drug meant to treat mental ailments. 
In the accompanying literature, Sandoz suggested that psychiatrists take LSD themselves as it would allow them to gain a better understanding of the schizophrenic experience. That's the original intent. Understand the experience of schizophrenics. That paradigm doesn't stick around for too long. But these kind of suggestions become the norm in psychedelic research, and it paved the way for people like Timothy Leary and the research in the 1960s, and that's how it went. From 1947 to 1965, Sandoz produced and shipped LSD on a scale unlikely to be seen today, or perhaps ever again. That all depends. If the 1940s mark the origin of LSD, it was the 1950s that saw its golden age of research and study. But that's not the same thing as its peak popularity, which would come sometime shortly after the FDA was given the authority to regulate investigatory drugs. And before you knew it, funding for experiments using LSD dried up. It's a 30-year run. And during that run, while there was funding, the field of psychedelic research was a productive one, in which many of the obvious notions we hold today about these substances were discovered. It was an exciting time for many people. One among them was Humphrey Osman, who noticed what LSD could do for the field of psychiatry. The ability to, as he put it, quote, enter the illness and see with a madman's eyes, hear with his ears, and feel with his skin is what first piqued his interest. But that would change as the psychedelic paradigm was due for a major shift. As you might expect, LSD had a PR problem. When you bill a substance whose experience is highly suggestible as one that will mimic psychosis, I mean, LSD was called a psychomimetic drug after all, you will elicit in the subject's experiences that which could only be described as madness. Sidney Katz, an early user of LSD under the supervision of Humphrey Osmond, put it, quote, I saw faces of familiar friends turn into fleshless skulls and the heads of menacing witches, pigs, and weasels. The gaily patterned carpet at my feet was transformed into a fabulous heaving mass of living matter, part vegetable, part animal. I was repeatedly held in the grip of a terrifying hallucination in which I could feel and see my body convulse and shrink until all that remained was a hard, sickly stone. Now, let's not forget... There is a certain duality to the experience. Even Katz noted that saying, quote, At times I beheld visions of dazzling beauty, visions so rapturous, so unearthly, that no artist will ever paint them. Katz's experience makes sense. As one of the early participants in Osmond's LSD experiments, he was led to expect madness and psychosis, and that's what he got. In hindsight, this reveals a central tenet of the psychedelic experience. It is suggestible. Set and setting play a role in the experience, but as I said, in hindsight, that's something Osman and his colleague Abram Hoffer did not have at the time. 
they administered LSD experiments to dozens of people trying to achieve that window into the brain chemistry of psychosis. The whole experience was put under scrutiny. How long after dose does it take for delirium to begin? What is the proper dose size? What is the meaning of the experience? Why does it happen? Does it have any other benefits than researching psychosis? The last question is what leads to the collapse of the psychotomimetic paradigm. You see, Hoffer and Osmond's early psychedelic research was based on what was observable, the objective. You can measure exterior behaviors. If the patient flaps their arm like wings for 42 minutes because she thought she was flying, you can observe that. You can look at how long she was flapping her arms, how long after dosing the flapping started, where was she sore the next day? Where was she sore the next day? At which angle did she flap? How far apart was each flap from another? What was the timing? What was the time that passes from when she raises her arm until it's back at her side? But that doesn't necessarily mean any of that is valuable data for understanding the therapeutic value of psychedelics. But is that even knowable? Can you crack into the mind as to what is therapeutic? Some say yes, some say no. B.F. Skinner famously said that the mind is a black box, meaning the subjective experience of the mind is unknowable. This, of course, presents a conundrum. This is that PR problem on so many fronts. The researchers Hoffer and Osmond, after facilitating dozens of LSD sessions, look at their evidence and testimonies and propose that the experiences under LSD as described, are quite similar to the experiences of alcoholics going through DTs. DT, by the way, stands for delirium tremens. You could think of what... It's withdrawal from alcohol, essentially. Jack Kerouac describes the pain of DTs in some detail in his book Big Sur. Writing of them, he says, quote, I can hear myself whining again. Why does God torture me? But anybody who's never had a delirium tremens, even in their early stages, may not understand that it's not so much a physical pain, but a mental anguish, indescribable to those ignorant people who don't drink and accuse drinkers of irresponsibility. The mental anguish is so intense that you feel you have betrayed your very birth, the efforts Nay, the birth pangs of your mother when she bore you and delivered you to this world. You've betrayed every effort your father ever made to feed you and raise you and make you strong and, my God, even educate you for life. You feel a guilt so deep. You identify yourself with a devil and God seems far away, abandoning you to your sick silliness. You feel sick in the greatest sense of the word, breathing without believing it. Sick, sick. Sick, your soul groans, you look at your helpless hands as though they were on fire and you can't move to help. You look at the world with dead eyes, there's on your face an expression of incalculable repining like a constipated angel on a cloud. In fact, it's actually a cancerous look you throw on the world through brown, gray, wool fuds over your eyes. Your tongue is white and disgusting, your teeth are stained, your hair seems to have dried out overnight. There are huge mucks in the corners of your eyes, greases on your nose, froth at the sides of your mouth. In short, that very disgusting, 
and well-known hideousness everybody who's walked past a city street drunk in the Bowries of the world. Now, that's very literary. And it's interesting because the literary nature of some of these great novelists in history will play a distinct role in the history of psychedelics very soon. You'll see that in the next episode. But Hoffer and Osman look at those DTs, which Kerouac described to a T, and looked at the psychedelic experience and said, these are pretty similar. One seems to be a little more concentrated and potent, that's the LSD, and one seems to be prolonged and um, chronic, and that's the DTs. Hoffer and Osman thought perhaps that using a single high-dose LSD experience would be enough to keep recovering alcoholics sober. You shock the alcoholic into sobriety, which is where that shift from objective observation to the subjective experience begins. This is the way of moving psychedelic research from peeking into the mind of the psychotic into using it for treatment of some sort. Now, the LSD for DT reenactment paradigm is brief. It's much shorter than even the psychotomimetic paradigm. But something interesting happened when Hoffer and Osman went about treating alcoholism with LSD. It seemed to work. But the experiences described did not resemble DTs at all, but rather they were uplifting and inspiring experiences, the kind of thing we hear today. The feeling of being connected to some larger community and whatnot. The discussion about set and setting and the subjective therapeutic experience comes into the foreground. And for that, we must realize that the story of psychedelics was not told only in labs and research institutions. After Sandoz opened up the world's supply of LSD, people like Al Hubbard, who is part mystic, con artist, redneck, OSS operative, bootlegger, renegade, and undercover agent popped up around the United States, running their own clandestine LSD research operations. So the newest character in the story, Al Hubbard, he is sort of, he's sort of an enigma. A figure that seems to be in part myth, likely of his own creation, but you can't be sure of that. Al Hubbard is in equal measures written about as though all of his exploits are scientific fact. And at the same time, he's written about as though all of his exploits are made up. It's an interesting dichotomy. As one friend put it, quote, Al Hubbard was a very strange man, but he probably knew more about LSD than anybody else in the world. And that is why, despite the myth, myths and gaps, Al Hubbard is mentioned most of the time when talking about LSD, Al Hubbard is, as Michael Pollan puts it in his book, How to Change Your Mind, the Johnny Appleseed of LSD, a rebel who once did 18 months in prison for bootlegging during Prohibition. Again, from Pollan, quote, A few other curious facts about the psychedelic Al Hubbard. He was an ardent Catholic with a pronounced mystical bent. And he was unusually flexible in his professional loyalties, working at times as a rum and gun runner, as well as an agent for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. At one time or another, he also worked for the Canadian Special Services, the U.S. Department of Justice, and the Food and Drug Administration. 
His FBI file suggests that he also had links to the CIA during the 1950s, but the redactions are too heavy for it to reveal much of any of his role. What we can say about Al Hubbard is that between 1951 and 1966, he introduced an estimated 6,000 people to LSD. He also met with many prominent psychedelic researchers and writers, the likes of Aldous Huxley and Timothy Leary, who have crucial roles in later episodes. Hubbard also met with Humphrey Osmond, one of the primary LSD researchers at the time, and essentially one of the focuses for this episode. Hubbard, who was seemingly no one, was also well-connected with what seemed like everyone. Osmond and Hubbard first met for lunch at the Vancouver Yacht Club. Hubbard was known to have a small fleet of ships and was referred to by some as captain ever since he got his Master of Sea Vessel certification and did some time in the U.S. Merchant Marines. Osmond seemed to have nothing but positive things to say of Hubbard and of the meeting. Osmond recalled, quote, It was a very dignified place, and I was rather awed by it. Hubbard was a powerfully built man with a broad face and a firm hand grip. He was also very genial and an excellent host. Hubbard arranged the meeting to secure some mescaline, which is another of the classical psychedelics and our focus for the next episode. But before that, since Al Hubbard had some links with the CIA, it seemed like an appropriate time to address something I'm sure a few of you are curious of. MKUltra. For those of you who are not sure what it is, I found the following transcript of a December 23rd, 1984 episode of 60 Minutes on the CIA website. Quote, Ed Bradley, MKUltra is not the name of a new James Bond movie. And of course, they'd say some dumb shit like that on 60 Minutes. It is our, or was, a code word for a secret CIA project which took place between 1953 and 1964 in which unsuspecting people were used in mind control experiments that left them emotionally crippled for life. MKUltra consisted of more than 130 research programs that took place in prisons, hospitals, and universities all over the United States. Now, of course, this was a touch sensationalized, but it's true. The CIA funded a project to dose people with LSD, and that's the simplified version. The project sparked several lawsuits over damages originating from the experiment. In a 1982 article from the Washington Post about the lawsuits, again on the CIA website, quote, one of the plaintiffs, Farrell v. Kirk, was used as a chemical mixing bowl even though the CIA knew he was mentally unstable. After being dosed with a variety of drugs, Kirk attempted suicide by burning and hanging and once even tried to gnaw his own arm off. A second victim, Don Roderick Scott, says he suffered permanent brain damage from the tests. A third, John R. Maul, a fugitive, and the fourth, James T. Knight, is still in prison. All four say they suffered flashbacks and other severe symptoms for years after they were drugged by the CIA. But let's step away from the land of espionage and operations that edge a little uncomfortably to conspiracy land for me, and take this back to broad cultural concerns. How does this MK Ultra case study relate to the larger story? Because 
there always has to be some connection besides pop culture references and a Hollywood ploy, and that is risk and uncertainty. In the 1960s, the risks associated with psychedelic use were debated bitterly. One half claimed it was totally safe, another that it was deadly and addictive, and as is the case with many debates, the truth is likely somewhere in the middle. One researcher, Sidney Cohen, surveyed those working with LSD and some 5,000 subjects taking LSD or mescaline, and he concluded from his study that complications from the use of LSD and mescaline were surprisingly infrequent. But the story progresses, and by 1966, you see headlines suggesting a moral panic around LSD and other psychedelic drug use. Here's some headlines. Quote, LSD use charged with killing teacher. Quote, sampled LSD youth plunges from the viaduct. Quote, LSD use near epidemic in California. Another, six students blinded on LSD trip in sun. Quote, girl, five, eats LSD and goes wild. And a personal favorite of sensational journalism. Quote, thrill drug warps mind, kills. Less than a decade before these headlines hit newsstands around the country, Life magazine ran an enthusiastic article on psilocybin in the tale of Gordon Wasson and Maria Sabina. Something changed. A paradigm shift of unprecedented speed and severity. Research grants, thousands of articles and conferences, and researchers have gone almost overnight. While you may have begun to form an idea as to how LSD's public perception soured, we've only scratched the surface of the whole hallucinogenic picture. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this is Dirty History. Now, as you may have noticed, this is only the beginning of the story. Thousands of studies and papers written, federal funding, hell, even the CIA is involved. But eventually, all that funding dries up. Drugs become public enemy number one, and this whole thing comes crashing down. There are many moving parts we have to cover, and we're not discussing an event or a case study, but a whole movement. So you may feel a sense of being unfulfilled, but I want you to know that that's on purpose and that a lot of these blanks and these things that you thought I could go into in more depth will be visited in the next few episodes. Just know I will attempt to clarify those most glaring concerns and questions. So if you could refrain from laying judgment just yet and listen to the whole series, I would greatly appreciate it. But also, if you have any questions still lingering, please feel free to reach out to me via email or find me on social media. You can email me at dirtyhistorypod at gmail.com. You can find me on social media, Instagram at dirtyhistorypod, facebook.com slash dirtyhistorypodcast, Twitter at poddirty. Just a warning, I check Twitter, I think, less than I do Instagram if we're being honest with each other. And of course, you can go to our website and fill out the contact page, dirtyhistorypod.com slash contact. My name is Thomas Thompson, and I, um, I hope you got something out of this.
thank you and good luck.